Welcome, folks, to a special Noble Ape recording on the 13th of June, or June 13th, depending on what part of the world you are. Fifteen years ago, a fellow in Canberra, Australia, came up with this pretty ridiculous idea of doing a, a simulation associated with philosophical ideas. And in part of memorialising these 15 years, I've decided to go back and find people that were part of the original discussion drag them 15 years into the present and see what they have to say associated with this thing called Noble Ape. And the uh, the first guinea pig, the first canary down the mineshaft, is none other than Bo Daly. Hello, Bo. Hi, Tom. It's certainly been a while since we last spoke, hasn't it? It has. It's been an extraordinarily long time. And you influenced a number of elements of the Noble Ape development. You feature in the original manuals of Noble Ape that have uh, just been re-released at a much cheaper rate and ebook version. Uh, folks are interested in seeing Bo's writing around mid-October, I think, 1996. But you also had influences on the uh, musical elements of Noble Ape, and I think, I guess, just the broader philosophy. Do you remember how we first met? I have this recollection that uh, at the time I was hosting a radio show on a local community radio station, and... Um, and you got in touch and we did a little feature. Probably, we probably spoke for about an hour um, and we talked about a whole lot of concepts that I hadn't really thought about a lot before. Um, some of them were philosophical, some of them were, were uh, really computational. Um, I remember being introduced to the notion of polymorphic, polymorphic objects for the first time during that conversation. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I think that's probably where we started uh, actually having conversations about... about uh, artificial life in general and what consciousness might mean from a philosophical perspective and whether it, whether it's possible to model consciousness computationally. Um, and uh, I think we, we had quite a few conversations along those lines. Um, we didn't necessarily always agree with each other, did we? <laughs> no, I think it's, it's interesting because when I think of, of Canberra and I still have family members in Canberra, there is a kind of continuous incest element. And I seem to recall... I don't actually remember how we first met. I remember the the radio show. It's a certain elements, but I understand also that our parents were part of the same babysitting club. So we may right. have had like some early childhood meetings. In fact, I'm trying to track down James Murata as well. Uh, and James, yeah. uh, have you heard there's, there's, from there's James? There's someone else. No. Yeah. So there's there's another name I haven't heard for a while. Um, yeah. So I I guess. I probably know him mostly from high school where we went to the same high school in year 11 and 12 um, and we ended up in the same philosophy class at uh, at the Australian National University and we were studying Kant and Hegel and Heidegger and people like that um, and I think we had, I think at the time James was quite taken with, with Heidegger and the work of uh, the phenomenologists in general um, and since then I have absolutely no idea what's what's uh, happened to him <laughs> yeah he he ended up at oxford he was at oxford right. for a number of years and i'm trying to track him down currently he doesn't appear to still be at oxford he okay. kind of left a rather curious note up on his personal website and i guess i could probably track him down via facebook or one of these many sources but i have emailed him uh, to ask him to to be involved with uh, with these very recordings to celebrate uh, fifteen years, my recollection is I can't my my recollection of for the time in Australia isn't particularly good, um, <laughs> but I seem to recall that uh, Graham Wilson also had some kind of connection or maybe brought us back mm -hmm. together. I can't recall how all that fitted together, but I think the. The early stages of the Noble Eightwood development were very much about uh, having the kind of discussions that we had associated not only with the nature of the mind and the simulatable nature of the mind, but also various kind of social philosophy uh, elements associated with simulation. And certainly, Noble Eight has gone through so many different ebbs and twists with these kind of things, but it's still seems to be a point where people that have some interest in these ideas can kind of perturb the simulation in various directions and see what comes out. Yeah, one of the interesting features I just sort of discovered, I mean, obviously, um, I, I sort of periodically 
check out the latest binary of um, Noble Ape, Noble Ape, <laughs> and uh, one of, one of those instances was was yesterday um, after I received your email, and yeah, so one of one of the interesting features, which um, I'm not sure whether I would have had any influence on at all, but uh, this is this this idea of uh, internal and external time perception, and I actually do recall having a conversation with you about about that, um, about the sort of the differences between. Uh, sort of objective time and subjective time, and that seems to be represented quite nicely in in certainly, the current version. Yeah, certainly in the documentation. I mean, I think mm. the Noble Lake philosophic document is really certain mm. 1997, and I have maintained right. that very... So, yes, you, you've picked up uh, very much of the kind of time that you were uh, heavily involved, I guess, in the discussion. Mm. I, it's funny because now... I mean, the kind of things that we talk about now associated with Noble Ape is this notion of almost kind of deconstructing elements of Dawkins' memetics, but really more about the idea of... Uh, well, for example, we have this fellow called Bob Mottram in the UK who has modelled a wide variety of different phenomena through Noble Ape, and one of the things that he's done recently is looked at the notion of the propagation of ideas rather than being about almost like genetic information, more being about virus-like information. And the notions of social graphing and interplay, which really you were also... I mean, this is your section in the original manuals dealing with the notion of uh, kind of social norms and how to actually simulate that in this uh, dynamic. But returning to the idea of internal and external, this is very much a kind of ongoing theme in the simulation. It's one of the elements... I think probably Novelate Philosophic is still a pretty good document because everything, including moving towards this notion of language, which it does at the end, and the idea that the environment really constructs the societies, there's now considerably more radical regionalism in terms of the apes almost becoming kind of nationalistic uh, in terms of their particular views and the notions of regional languages and all this kind of depth, which really the... The simulation that you knew, that wasn't a part of it. It was more... Not like Philosophic was very much a kind of hopes and dreams document. And I think certainly reflecting in the past 15 years through a variety of ebbs and flows, the simulation has, has maintained that uh, vision through a variety of different practitioners that have different ideas and different, uh, well, different interests. And certainly the, the use and... I don't know, I wouldn't want to use the term exploitation, but certainly the perturbation that both Apple and Intel have had on the simulation uh, <laughs> has, has, you know, has taken things in, in different directions as well. But, yeah, the philosophically sticky elements, I think, are, are, um, are, are still there. The notion of internal and external, though, I guess my, my hope when I started Noble 8 was that a lot of the stuff that has been done in the past 15 years would actually be possible. Part of it was realised through modern computation uh, and I mean I'm not sure if you can recall the kind of shared environment or the kind of computers I was writing Noble originally but uh, yes. it, it was very much associated with the kind of seed ideas and the hope that uh, computation would move in the directions that it had. It was one of the more emotional elements particularly when Intel picked up the simulation that they were actually there was this amazing kind of feedback loop where the computation that I was looking for, Intel was actually developing using the simulation as the kind of testing basis of it. Really? Uh, and it was quite extraordinary actually meeting some of these engineers about a year ago now, probably June or July last year, and getting the sense of... I mean, it's one thing to be corresponding with folks via email, and certainly they were just, like, mind-blowingly brilliant. I spoke with a couple of their engineers who had completely deconstructed the cognitive simulation in their own kind of mathematical form and were using it for optimization that I could never really imagine. And it's it's a strange thing because it really not like to me now is more like a child than it is an actual project in terms of it kind of maintaining in in some kind of strange ethereal way. So yeah, it is very curious to to talk to people who who were part of the start and maybe have kind of periodically followed it. So the the philosophical underpinnings of Noble Ape were pretty promiscuous. Hmm. To say. Um, <laughs> but certainly, yeah, from your perspective and certainly James Murata's perspective, they were certainly two quite different. In fact, I think really my interactions with James Murata were more instigatory than they were kind of philosophically rigorous. It was more just like Noble Ape was kind of like a cattle prod tool to just say, no, wait, actually, through relatively empirical means, you can actually get quite an interesting simulation coming out of it. 
yes, I'm, I'm interested to hear what what he uh, what he thought of it at the time. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that through his one of his contemporaries, well, not his contemporaries, one of the uh, actual academics at Oxford, or one of the most senior academics, is a fellow by the name of Nick Bostrom. Oh yes, I'm, I'm very familiar with his work. Yeah, yes, who's written quite heavily about the notion of simulation, but is actually genuinely ignorant of it. And I think what has interested me through, particularly kind of being found or discovered or welcomed into the artificial life community, is that there are a number of applied practitioners that really have uh, a lot to say philosophically, if only they can kind of direct their uh, particular angst in that direction. Hmm. And it did strike me as quite curious that James Morata would end up in the same faculty as Nick Bostrom, particularly... I, I did kind of feed James academic articles that I'd published to try and instigate something with Nick Bostrom, but he was probably far too politically savvy to do something like that. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> who knows? Who, who knows? knows? Who knows? But yeah, it is a it is a very very curious thing. So your own your own philosophical underpinnings. Let's return to that. What sure. was your particular perspective at the time? Has it changed? And do you think that? Uh, you know, some aspects of this this whole noble ape idea may have changed some of your own thinking. Well, I think um, at the time I was I was particularly interested in uh, ideas of sort of social organisation and and um, technologies of of social control. So I was I was particularly interested in ideas coming out of the the Foucauldian kind of school where um, where. And Foucault was particularly interested in how um, how social technologies actually shaped forms of of subjectivity, uh, and I think I've sort of continued on uh, on that sort of path. Uh, and since then, there's been a lot of work in things like uh, obviously network theory and social networks and so forth, which I see as sort of being continuous with those. Uh, sort of that sort of Foucauldian strand, and I'm very interested in that. I'm also very interested in ideas. I'm still very interested in ideas of organisation, particularly as they apply to the kind of environments I find myself in these days, which is the sort of the the workplace and the corporate office and so forth. Um, you have um, where you have these quite interesting sort of social dynamics, and then you have attempts to sort of overlay those with. Uh, with these theoretical constructs, which are really quite uncritical, but are very powerful. Things like uh, in the software industry where I work, we have uh, ideas. We have you probably familiar with the, um, organizational ideas like agile, um, which is a sort of just quite an artificial construct, but is but is enormously powerful. And the other the other strand uh, that I've been following. Um, in the last few years is sort of ecological theory and uh, environmental theory. Uh, and so, I mean, that's speaking as a sort of an environmentalist. Uh, I've, you know, I have quite a strong interest in, in a lot of the ideas coming out of the environment movement. And one of those is very similar, which is this idea of sort of using ecological spaces as kind of uh, experiments uh, because ecologies are Amazingly complex spaces, and um, you've you've got one, for example, in the noble noble ape simulation. There's is, is an amazingly complex ecology going on there, uh, even if it can be computationally modelled. And then you can undertake particular interventions in these ecologies and treat them as sort of as, as scientific experiments, even when you're trying to produce a particular outcome. And that's there's so there's a theory there which is quite prevalent in uh, environmental. Uh, management called adaptive management, and so both of those two strands are sort of part of a kind of a critique of of science, really, which is not a critique of science as such, but a critique of of normal science, the kind of science which says we have the answers already, and um, we know that if we just do enough experiments, we'll find out what the truth is. And both of those sort of strands of of knowledge suggest that the so social spaces and ecological spaces are incredibly complex. We're probably not going to find uh, the truth at any point. Even if there is some kind of a truth, we probably don't really have access to it. But what we can do is we can we can interact with it and we can work out how we affect the environment and how we affect our, uh, our social surroundings. I think those are the kind of ideas that I'm particularly interested in at the moment. Hmm. And that they are all fundamentally ideas that come through Noble Ape as well. I like the idea of mm. from the panopticon to agile. That was just a footnote that I made through your general. <laughs> I 
think there's a lot there that could be explored. But do you, this notion of uh, social and environmental space is certainly, I mean, the social aspect, um, I've been working, Bob developed the initial social interaction kind of uh, metering and event code, and then I created a social graph simulation, which really shows that there is a social space that is independent of the, of the real world space, etc., the simulated world space in this case. And what I found particularly fascinating from that is it is very much almost a, not necessarily, it's a particle physics environment fundamentally, um, but right. you can get amazing visualization of social interactions and the ebbs and flows and the idea that a radical could be ejected from a social group and then kind of pull uh, away uh, various other social followers. The themes of kind of social simulation and also ecological simulation and finding quite abstract interrelationships has been there's been a long history associated with noble life and some of the more interesting uses particularly amongst what, what was this, people that teach fundamentally uh, so san diego state perhaps or uc san diego did a whole course for I'm not sure, graduates in, in education associated with Noble Ape, and they took it in a variety of different directions. I had some correspondence with the primary academic who, as you have done, there were more ideas that they had initially and then set these possibilities as assignment work to the graduate students, right. uh, which gave some amazing feedback into... I mean, the thing that's still... I find fascinating with the simulation is the way people can use it for their own particular interests, quite removed from what it was originally uh, created for. And I think the notion of truth associated with science is certainly something that Noble Ape, as, as one of many artificial life simulations, has not necessarily worked against, but I think has looked more as, at science as almost a kind of arts and craft continuous pursuit, um, <laughs> at least has considerably more humour. What you're describing in terms of hard science is more readily described, I guess, as naive science through folks that are uh, maybe part of the simulation community in particular. But I think mm. what interests me is that certainly in the past five years, I've looked more strongly at the ideas in Noble Eight being very applicable to contemporary social theory, particularly how little we actually know uh, about the environments that we interact with and also how we are generally naive, in large part because we can fool ourselves that we, we think we understand. And certainly that is an ongoing theme through, through Noble Ape as well. So one other thing that sort of comes to mind when you, when you, when you mention that is actually having the ability to understand what is actually going on inside the simulation because presumably um, when people are, are running simulations in the sort of in the in especially in the Nick Bostrom kind of uh, understanding of simulations people are doing it for a particular purpose and and in order to do that they they probably have to understand what's actually what's actually going on inside the simulation see, and that's, that's paradox number 16 of bostrom's many paradoxes i would say right. <laughs> that in fact is so far removed from the truth i think the simulation is more about novelty i think actually what right. it is about is throwing down ideas and seeing how little one actually knows but also then this notion of emergence which is a, a central theme in terms of discovering yes. completely curious uh, relationships that and really what it shows is that irrespective of whether you know the initial formulae, you won't necessarily know what the formulae will produce when you, um, you know, have thousands of or tens or hundreds of agents doing aspects of this formulae. I think our, our brains are very well geared to simple interactions, but even taking simple interactions and multiplying it by factors of, you know, 100, 200,000, what have you, still creates an amazing amount of, uh, of unknown. And I think what's emerging through the artificial life community as well is this notion of simulation science, that actually what is coming through all these different kinds of simulations is a, a new kind of science, which ultimately I don't necessarily want to... I might say completely blank. New kind of science, the fellow's name. Created a search engine recently. Stephen Wolfram. I'm not saying his view specifically. I think there's actually something more interesting that we can create a new kind of science, a new kind of language, a new kind of philosophy that is motivated, in fact, by vastly complex systems. And <laughs> computation gives us part of that element, but our ability to actually acknowledge that we know very little when we start this process is, is a critical part of the discovery, I think. That um, maps directly onto the sort of adaptive management discourses that are coming out of um 
ecology and environmental management where um, researchers are, are posed with a particular problem which is perhaps here's a, here's a, a lake that has effectively died or is in the process of dying um, and we can we can posit some theories about why it's dying maybe there's too much agricultural nutrient load coming into the in, into the environment or something but fundamentally we have no idea what's what's uh, causing the problem we don't even know if it is a problem and uh, we don't know which interventions are going to going to fix it uh, so we, we effectively start with almost no knowledge and all we can do is interact with the environment and find out um, find out how our actions uh, cause cause reactions in the environment and that, that seems to be that seems to map very very closely to what you just described about uh, simulation science yes the interesting thing that comes through all of these you and well i mean the, the, the history of simulation particularly throughout artificial life is that the time perturbation element is really critical it's not a condition necessarily where you start a process and then immediately you have effects that you can see from it the effects are very much uh, well some are temporal and some are non-temporal and can occur well after things stop as well which is one of the really curious things. This also came through uh, Freeman Dyson's comments associated with uh, global warming. And I think what mm. I found fascinating from that was not taking the popular view uh, that Dyson was denying global warming, but in fact, probably more the case that these things were far more uh, vicious than we had even predicted, even with the existing state of simulation. In fact, I didn't think that there was, it was a, you know, a a particular direction in Dyson's commentary at all. And what I think is fascinating is that the more you study simulation, the more you understand that naive simulations may move you towards particular results, but it's far more likely as you add more complexity that things could go far worse than has been originally uh, simulated, particularly in the, the case of, uh, of you know, uh, well, our, our ability to stop something which seems to be just a, a fast-moving uh, fast effect. Um, those climate simulations tend to have very, very simple social models built uh, built into them. So the actual prediction of of social activity is 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 quite naive in the sense that it um, it simply posits things like we are going to continue to expand our economy at this rate, and that means uh, at this particular uh, rate of of carbon uh, emission per unit of of economic uh, activity, then we're going to produce this output of carbon. And I think I think that there's something in your in your suggestion there that um, some of those simulations could do with a more sort of complex and possibly uh, a, a less controllable kind of social element. Do you want to hear something really scary, though? What's that? About let me see now. Five years ago, and there were three different climate scientists that contacted me. Noble Ape has a has a weather simulation as part of it. It's a relatively right. simple weather simulation. It's actually to do with an idea of kind of water pressure and a glass, effectively a glass ceiling. So the water pressure and the air pressure and the heat kind of moves along and it's pressurised on top of a very hard atmosphere which kind of squeezes water out and squeezes thunderstorms out and all this kind of stuff. So three separate climate scientists who, are, who write these kind of simulations contacted me, I think the last one was about, I want to say 2006, but it was, it first entered the simulation in 2001, and I got an email almost probably a year to the day after it first entered, and then I, so it was kind of spaced evenly over that, that three, four year period. But they all commented that it was an amazing climate model that I had kind of whipped up out of nowhere, <laughs> and it made me realise that um, this is a, an area of academia that really as you say, he really has a, a finger in the wind. And I guess that was Dyson's criticism as well. I'm, I'm sure that they are far better now. Uh, well, well, they are. They, but, um, they are. They're, they're, very, they're extraordinarily complex in, in terms of um, modelling the sort of the biophysical environment. Um, so they have all sorts, of, all sorts of understandings based on how, uh, how carbon reacts in the atmosphere and how it reacts with, with, uh, with rocks and so forth to to um, take carbon out of the atmosphere all, all these sorts of all these sorts of biophysical modeling is extraordinarily complex but I, I think there's there's a tendency to leave the the social dimension to uh, to people who are engaged in sort of grassroots activity so people who, who go out and and actually lobby for um, better outcomes for the environment and for um, 
and for global warming and so forth. And that's it's it's not really part of the of the remit of the the simulators at present. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think and I I use the term junk science very strongly. I think there's some there's some kind of misunderstanding associated with what junk science is versus what pseudoscience is. My definition is very much associated with funding from uh, petroleum and coal interests uh, and basically creating, well, what appear to be peer-reviewed papers that are, in fact, flooding uh, aspects of uh, a scientific discourse but are completely right. funded from. The thing that strikes me is that science, and this in large part is also my critique of Dawkins, that when he was the uh, nominally the people scientist, he concentrated almost exclusively on religion and didn't go after any of this, you know, emerging junk science to the point now, certainly in this country, and this country is relatively unique for a number of factors, but where a majority of the population now questions the kind of scientific information associated with these things. I think the forced politicisation of science is something that scientists need to understand in concepts of actually what, what is occurring in terms of both the influences of junk science, but also, I guess, the nature of kind of funding sources and a wide variety of other curious factors. Mm. And, yeah, it is increasingly interesting that, you know, the just doing the science, whatever that may mean, is probably not enough for these groups. And the interactions, particularly with grassroots, maybe non-science groups, is, is something that... The other person I'm going to talk to who's actually confirmed so far is Douglas Rushkoff. And Douglas Rushkoff oh, has um, explored... A lot of the, the kind of right-wing think tanks in this country, in terms of their manipulation of language, you know, global warming became climate change, all this kind of stuff, but also how remarkably successful they've been in terms of perturbing the discussion, at least domestically. There needs to be a strong anti-movement that is just as, not necessarily kind of nefariously intelligent, but just as capable of creating a strong contrast, which really seems to be quite lacking in the general discourse. But you're right, there is also a component of this absolute knowledge element, uh, which I think increasingly scientists need to be more honest about. I think that um, increasingly scientists are um, honest about the limits of, of knowledge and and even start questioning ideas like uh, truth, which were kind of sacrosanct uh, for a long time. And and even though, even though things like uh, simulations could be you could be used as sort of tools to, um, as part of the uh, almost a sort of a triumph, triumph of sort of ideas of logical positivism and so forth. Really, if that sort of honesty about truth is is, is part of it, then really it opens up a whole lot of complexity and uh, opens up the the idea that we we don't really know exactly what's going on, and uh, but we have we have confidence that if we take particular actions, we can make things better, and that's that's really what. Um, a lot of those people running climate simulations are, are doing. Um, they're they're saying we have a we have a certain degree of uncertainty um, in our model, but it's pretty clear that we have to take some action. It's probably a good idea to not focus on the uncertainty and to focus on the um, on the kind of outcomes which we need. Mm. It is interesting the idea that uh, simulation forms some kind of modern backbone to logical positivism. It's it's interesting also because I'm rarely asked, well, I, I write about, but I'm rarely asked explicitly associated with what this noble ape thing has done to my worldview. I now feel very <laughs> firmly that I am a monkey in a simulation, and the only thing I can get out of that environment is exactly what we're doing currently, kind of an international communication, is the only way that I can break out of the simulation in any meaningful sense. In fact, really, all that has come through Noble Ape in terms of my own philosophy, aside from a kind of brutal computational nihilism, which may have something to do with the past 15, 16 years of, of my own experience, is <laughs> this notion that um, the way we can break out of these things is through not necessarily a radical communication, but at least an honest communication which can transcend all these elements. So I was interviewed a couple of years ago associated with post-singular nihilism, which I seem to be attached to on some level. And um, the point that I made is exactly this point, that the if, if you take everything as, as, as governed so far, the element that we have, in, the last element that we have of our own humanity is actually this kind of communication. And I think looking at um, 
simulation as an element of logical positivism. That's going to take me more than a couple of days to compress, I think. <laughs> we may have to resume this conversation based on that because I think I'm going to have to compress that one a little bit more. I guess it's interesting because on, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of my own changes, in terms of my physical locational changes over the past sixteen odd years, of which Noble Ape is quite instrumental in in some of those experiences, but also the sense of kind of constant rebirth, reawakening and moving has, has been a large part of the my experience associated with the Noble Ape simulation. It's interesting talking to you and I guess hopefully others um, who have obviously had had life experiences kind of going on but perhaps not as uh, I don't know, necessarily reconstructing life experience. <laughs> there have been various points where I, I, I'm yeah. This is becoming like a, a simulation itself. Um, if only I had constructed my life in such a way that I wasn't writing uh, software all the time, what would have happened? Yeah, I think this, this is the elements of writing, I think, that I'm, I'm getting out of this. And ironically, writing is very much dying in front of me. And this is another interesting point with Doug Rushkoff, because he's now embraced very much the kind of self-publishing model, which I, in my non-academic writing, have embraced as well, just as means of mm. actually getting it out there. But, um, yeah, it is curious. It is curious that the nature of software engineering and, well, basic writing software has changed so dramatically in the past 16 years as well in terms of it moving almost to a kind of blue-collar, well, a completely outsourced profession um, in yes. a number of areas. And I think the initial idealism, and it's funny because I don't know much about Bob Mottram's uh, circumstances, but I do get the sense that he's a fellow idealist associated with the nature of code. In fact, a lot of the people that have picked up the, the software, the actual development of Noble Ape, uh, have been people that are very much kind of code idealists as well. So it is a curious thing in and of itself. But I think the stuff that you were describing, um, particularly associated with the broader hopes and, and logical positivism, I think are... It's, yeah, it's a track which I haven't heard for probably 12 years. <laughs> so, so, yeah, no, I think that's quite revitalising. We, we'll, we'll need to redo this after I've actually had some time to decompress that notion. Um, right, because, and I'll, I'll try and think of I'll try and think of what I actually meant. It was more of a throwaway <laughs> comment, really. <laughs> which is just completely kind of decompressing my <laughs> mental states with me. Kind of. Very interesting. Well, I think that was the nature of our initial discussion as well, the stuff that I got out of it. Nick Gaffney is another fellow that I want to track down. I've had some correspondence oh, yes. with him uh, periodically, and he was very heavily involved with my... Well, the time that I was in Berlin with him uh, was a kind of turning point in... Um, in a variety of different directions. He similarly, I would have these conversations with and then what he considered the throwaway line was actually the thing that impacted me the most and I kind of went off and scribbled in that particular direction. I mean, coming to a kind of 15-year milestone, which in and of itself seems rather perverse, I think you were probably at the laser show at the shed for the kind of two-year anniversary or something like that. Maybe not, actually. I can't remember if you were actually photographed at that... Uh, event or not. I remember a number of folk, including Nick Gaffney, coming from Adelaide for that um, particular event. I'm not sure, but um, is that the same laser that some years later um, your your mother tried to um, tried to give me? Yes. Yeah. It is. The digital <laughs> laser. It's the defence contracting internal multi-page per second printing laser that actually nearly blinded me at the event uh, as well, because right. it was uh, yeah, far, yeah, far beyond the wattage. Your your mother was quite concerned about um, turfing it out into into landfill because she didn't want it falling into the wrong hands. Yeah, if Al Qaeda had gotten that laser, it would have uh, it would have fundamentally changed the nature of human history. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> similarly, I think if you'd gotten that laser, it probably would. Have <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do remember that period because I kind of got it in um, remote piecemeal updates. You did. You ended up with a Roland organ, though, didn't you? I think. Oh yes, I just I just saw that again today. That's um, that sort of comes out periodically. It's not currently in the studio, but it's um, it it sort of comes out occasionally, and it makes sounds. Uh, <laughs> it's it's quite a unique sort of analog piano sound. It is. Um, it is. It which, has reeds inside it. It has electric reeds, which is how it actually gets its sound. I think. I think really. So. Yeah. Okay. See. Um, that, that's what I really need to do to it. One day when I have time, I'll have to open it up and actually find out what's going on inside it. 
because, um, I mean, like all sort of old analog gear from that era, it's sort of almost infinitely tweakable. So <laughs> you can you can open it up and put in a bit a bit, bit more control here and there, and get some and actually expand the range of what it can do. Yeah, my uncle has uh, one that is, I think, about three generations earlier. That's actually a, a, a upright standing. It has like full legs and what have you. And um, he's taken it apart, and he said that once you've taken it apart and actually cleaned it out and done whatever you need to do to the reeds and what have you, if you're particularly careful, it will play a lot better. And because he actually has recollections of what they sounded like originally, his which I had the opportunity to play when I was in South Australia maybe a couple of years ago now, it sounds very different. The effect of oxidisation on the reeds actually changes the, the sound quite a bit. But, OK, so we've kind of touched on the... Um, the trials and tribulations of the past uh, 12 years of Barbalay. In terms of the trials and tribulations of the past 12 years of, of, of daily, what, 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 what can you add to this? I mean, you're still making music, it sounds like. Uh, yes. Um, uh, not, not a whole lot has changed in, in the musical sense. Um, I think about 12 years ago, I was working with a, a group called Dark Network, which, which is a project that is sort of ongoing as well. Um, and it's probably well and truly past its 15-year 15, 15 anniversary by now. Um, although that went sort of unmarked by a, a m- memorial podcast. Um, so, yeah, so that, that project keeps going. Uh, we periodically do things like uh, about a year ago, we put out a record and you know that was another similar to your sort of self-publishing idea we we decided to start our own uh, record label and uh, release it on on just on our website and via a couple of distributors in in Europe and I think it's just about time to get the second one out in that series which is what I'm kind of in the studio working on today and in addition to that we've I've got a another little project with Kate Crawford, who you might remember. Um, she passed on her email one of the... address, in fact. That's, that's how we are actually communicating, because Kate is on Facebook, so I knew I could, if I contacted right. her, it would be you know, just a matter of her passing on your email address. Yes, well, we, um, yeah, so we have another little project going called Clone, which is, has almost as long a lifespan as Dark Network, and we operate out of this little studio in um, just, just, out, just in the sort of the low-rent district of of uh, the Sydney city. <laughs> um, and um, it's interesting that you mentioned Facebook there because I did at one point, you know, toy with the idea of joining Facebook, but, um, but I didn't, I, I just couldn't, couldn't handle the idea of uh, being contacted by uh, people from, from my, uh, from primary school. And maybe this is a good opportunity to say hello to everyone from primary school. Um, but, <laughs> I have a wide and- reach with my audio recording bow. <laughs> but, um, Facebook. Of course, I can't really escape it, can I? Because I'm really only just one point away from being on Facebook, as you've just discovered. Well, I knew I knew Kate would be probably the best possible source. Uh, there yes. were other possible sources, but Kate seemed to uh, seemed to maintain a, a connection. Yeah, the thing that um, I did do some recording when I was in the Bay Area, and I do have an emu here, which I plug in and periodically really? kind of compose on and do various things with. But yeah, the musical aspect of Noble Ape has really uh, suffered, I think, in large part due to the, the constant movement for a few <laughs> years. But also, I guess, yeah, music is now much more a kind of intimate thing. Although, having said that, I do record uh, jingles for podcasts and various other things, um, you know, thematic music and these kind of things. And I have done some kind of more long-term composition that I should actually start considering releasing. But in the face of all the other media that I put out after hours, the musical aspects of Noble Ape. In fact, I went back, there were two CDs that came out associated with the development, one which you had, I think, a track on, maybe even two tracks, and the other which was just a a little EP that I put out in 99. But yeah, that is one thing that has really been lacking in the Noble Ape development. I went back, and it had probably been about three or four years since I'd listened to any of that, and listened to some of that recently, and it really does capture a time where, I mean, the dream originally, prior to the Rushkov article, was to come back to Canberra and actually spend six months, because I'd saved up enough money to actually spend six months doing nothing but recording. And then the Rushkov article came out and, you know, I ended up in Bay Area. But that's certainly something that's been missing out uh, in the Overlake development over many years, uh, is actually the kind of strong musical parallel, which was very much the defining element of the original development to really almost anthemic in terms of the ability to kind of continue the 
the development. And I guess there was so much unknown in terms of would this thing actually be something that a group would be receptive to and almost elements of self-doubt that I think the music part kind of bridged uh, in the early development. Pretty well after the Rushkov article, I was just kind of burnt out from <laughs> that fear. Um, I'm really just trying to make a sense out of stuff myself. Um, but yeah, it is, it is interesting. I have followed your um, collaboration with Kate uh, Crawford periodically. Uh, I think there were... Certainly Kate had a period where even even when I had reached the UK, I think she had various, uh, you know, music videos and other offerings that were easily accessible. Um, yes. And I think it's interesting that you're the kind of self-publishing music, because certainly CD production here is phenomenally cheap. I pressed a series of Biota uh, podcasts about two years ago, and I think I was paying, I can't remember, it was something like 35 cents a CD for the final press. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, but um, but I, I really think that the, the CD is, um, is, it has to be that cheap because it's really a throwaway format now. It's, um, it's, it's more or less going straight. It's one of those formats that is comes straight out of the production plant, goes into someone's iMac, gets ripped into iTunes, and, um, and is then on its way to landfill. It's one of the fastest... Um, transitions from production to destruction of of any of pretty much any media form that we have now. Yeah, the last um, CD that I produced, I insisted that people actually pass it on to random people once they had done exactly <laughs> what you described, because yes. the, the whole nature of it, if it goes straight into landfill, and this was a free CD, this was a CD that was given out at conferences and what have you. But if it goes straight into landfill, and really in large part it was just to get people onto a large archive of online audio recordings. But yeah, the, the, the movement straight to landfill, and I guess the, the digital download paradigm as it is now, is something which I think is very curious. I mean, the, the theme of the past 15 years has been not making any money out of Noble Ape, particularly after my <laughs> Bay Area experience. Like, literally, it's a... Beyond philosophy, it really is um, habitualized or ritualized in some fundamental form. Um, the only thing, the only thing that isn't that way is the original manuals, which I actually really do like in a paper form, although there's an electronic version of it as well. And I kind of moved very heavily to that when I actually started seeing it in a paper form. That it was very much, and that is now I don't know seven dollars or something. Um, mm. So in, in the price for university college student, um, ideally, the ability to actually make survival money from your art is something that um, I don't know it's not something that I've ever really considered seriously because it's not ever been uh, you know, a possibility but there was a period there um, particularly with some of the more slightly more mainstreamized um, clan analog elements because obviously Dark Network was, was part of clan analog uh, right. and I still get periodic correspondence from the um, the clan Analog alumnus um, John Draper, aka Captain Crunch, who has a single <laughs> clan analog track. Um, so yes, uh, another name from the past. But uh, do you get a sense of when they were starting? Uh, did they have a deal with Sony or something? I seem to recall some insanity um, in the late nineties associated with that. I don't think it was ever Sony, um, but you know, Kate's band Biftech did have a deal with Sony at one at one point. Um, but um, let's see. So there was there was a series, the succession of of record labels or, or sort of distributors that that gave Clan Analog money for various different things. Um, there was sort of Mushroom, which is a which is an Australian company that no longer exists. Um, when did Mushroom die? I'm not sure. It was maybe sometime in the last five or six years. They had this they had this gigantic concert in Melbourne with all of their um, all of their um, pop stars that they've produced over the over the years um, oh. as a farewell to Mushroom. Um, so then, subsequent to that, I think there was Festival was the, probably the um, the largest company that that had that was distributing Clan Analog stuff. Um, after that, it it was sort of uh, there were smaller distributors like um, Creative Vibes, uh, which is a sort of an interesting Sydney company, um, and now. I'm actually not sure who's distributing it at all right now. <laughs> right. But um, 
but yes, so so it's been it's been through a sort of succession of of record labels that were, if not directly um, commercial record labels, then something like commercial record labels, and um, but then even in that in that scenario, as pretty much anyone who's worked with a major record label will tell you, um, it's not a business that you get into to make the money, <laughs> unless you're one of the five or six people who does make money. Yeah, I'm looking um, at the mushroom lineup here, actually, <laughs> and a few of those people, well, at least for a short period of time, made some money. Yeah, you're right. So they they must have. I think there's even people as illustrious as Kylie Minogue would yeah. have started on mushroom. And her sister, and Jason Donovan, and a wide variety of others. Yeah, I even own some of the earlier mushroom offerings, but they're considerably more eclectic than this list of people that Wikipedia's put in front of me. Uh, <laughs> yes, quite quite disturbing, in fact. Um, so, yeah, I guess the the things that occurred in uh, Adelaide and caused the fracturing of a lot of the people that I think we were both involved with in Adelaide, um, well, we've mentioned Nick Gaffney, but there were, there were a few other folk in that part of the world. But anyway, there were a wide variety of folk that um, moved internationally and many of whom have stayed international. But anyway, Bo, I think this has been a... I think we should probably conclude the formal discussion at this point yeah. and edit that down so we've got some kind of coherent thing there. Uh, with the view of 15 years of Noble Ape, in 15 years' time, um, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll re-invite you back on for this kind of rambling discussion and hopefully something more interesting will have occurred. I guess, you know, interesting things have occurred, but um, in terms of philosophical grit... Well, that's one of the interesting things, actually, that has come out of Noble Ape is that I can write well, still fringe um, philosophical papers, but at least philosophical papers that have some strange applied weight, unlike things mm. like Bostrom. Uh, yes. and the, the academic part of Noble Ape, um, really only in the past three, four years, has really taken off. Um, I now have, I think, three Springer titles and a fourth one that I'm working on and various other... Uh, bits and pieces of the kind of academic publishing side of Noble Ape. A wide variety of elements. The fact that cognitive simulation in particular is something that I'm writing on more, um, which is quite ironic because it was something that was not even really considered by the academic community up until the point where I started publishing on it. But yeah, the broader philosophy, the broader ideas of what you're talking about in terms of uh, complexity and its use not only in ecology and social aspects, but also questions of uh, consciousness and uh, you know micro interaction as well as more important macro interaction um, it's all stuff that I've actually been able to write on and get published and uh, in some examples I wrote in a book called Nature Inspired Informatics which is the example that I use frequently because it started out with 99 academics and me, this was the initial submission and then it was 50 academics and me and then it was <laughs> 20 academics and me and it was 12 academics and me and then it ended up with 9 academics and and some schmuck who created this monkey simulation 15 years. <laughs> and it was like, have I just completely... And these were serious academic institutions that people were represented at. I, I do understand that there's a certain amount of novelty in, in the whole Noble Ape perspective, but it did give me a, a resounding sense that actually a lot of what I'd felt was not academically palatable could now actually be published. And really, that's in terms of... From your particular perspective, important things that may have happened in the local light development in the past 15 years, although it's still relatively fringy, although Springer really isn't that fringy, um, mm. it, um, yeah, I've been able to actually start uh, chipping away on the, uh, you know, three metre thick um, outer castle walls of... Uh, of modern academia and trying to of the things. ivory tower. Yeah, no, no, you've got to go through. You've got to go through at least three layers of castle wall, moats, alligators, dragons, and then you get to the ivory tower. But I'm I'm on the outer castle wall currently with my you know pick and uh, and a great degree of hope. Um, and I think that's Brilliant. that's yeah probably the from your particular perspective, uh, the the aspect of Noble Lake where now these ideas are slowly on the foot on the fringes being forwarded back into uh you know into potentially future uh philosophical academic discussion um, mm. which is interesting particularly because i'm getting out um in parallel to everything else i'm doing i'm getting out what i'm calling the biota transcripts which are a series of um podcasts initially that i've now kind of converted into academic paper kind of dialogue papers 
with the view that um, there are about 40 uh, academic institutions the world over currently teaching artificial life, but doing it very much from a kind of mid to late 80s, early 90s perspective. Um, hmm. And the ability actually to have primary conversations with a variety of academics and thinkers in the field and then get that in text and out. It's very similar, actually, to the current form of the original manuals in a, a book that will sell for, you know, $7 to undergraduates uh, is an amazing way of also propagating these ideas for, I think, probably the more important, uh, you know, next generations of, of thinkers and muses associated with these various fields. Uh, you've got to get them while they're young and preferably when they're in undergraduate uh, <laughs> studies, and I think that's that's pretty well the kind of ongoing vision. Very similar. It sounds like there's a sounds like there's a gaping hole in the market for a uh, introductory text in the field. <laughs> well, this is interesting because when I studied physics, uh, there was a book called well, the authors were Halliday, Resnick, and Walker, and they had written the the first year physics textbook, and they never needed to work again. In fact, one of them <laughs> flew through summer. Through, flew through the summer months from northern southern hemisphere continuously, uh, you know, trekking the world basically based on the, the sales associated with this book. And the interesting thing with artificial life as a as a kind of academic concept is it's now being adopted by a wide variety of disciplines that you wouldn't have previously considered it, you know, had any meaningful interest. Um, so yes, that may actually be the, that may actually be the lasting success of this whole noble ape thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and you, you can textbooks. you can stop lamenting, never making any money out of this. Yeah, yeah, maybe in fifteen years' time. But anyway, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. We'll, we'll conclude the formal yes. correspondence at this, uh, the formal discussion at this point, and uh, continue whatever kind of derogatory commentary we want to follow on this thing with. But it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and yeah, it's probably been at least. I mean, I don't want to say a decade, but it seems like six or seven years since we last had any correspondence. It must be something like that, yeah. And so, thanks for inviting me on. This has been uh, it's been good to revisit some of these ideas, and um, especially to fire up the simulation again and to see how far it's come. The funny thing is that there's so much development going in currently. I've been, I've got two developers pretty well working full time on Noble Ape. I only do it after hours, but um, there's so much development going on currently that the version that's on the site is actually drastically out of date. <laughs> Well, I did. Sorry. I did check out the version from Subversion, um, and um, I had some problems building it on Ubuntu. But um, but oh. I'll I'll fix those. No, no, no. It, it builds. I've built it on ten and eleven, and it should build straight from the script. Yes, um, which I think it did, and um, that's and hence my confusion. Very good. 